Media's Consumers Podcast for the week of November 6th. My name is Justin D. Hurd. My name is Nathan Steinman. And it is just the two of us this time. Just the two of Justin and Nathan. You're fired. Yeah, that was terrible, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. You can cut that out if you want. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> so um, we, we've passed the Halloween time. and We've been doing this for two years now. Yeah, over fucking two years. Who would have thought? Right. Um, almost on episode 50 as well. I so. know. We're going to have to do something special for episode 50 somehow. I have no idea what, but we're going to try. Um, we should probably... We should talk about maybe doing a commentary or something for the 50th episode. Yeah. Um, the I don't know. The weird thing about... like Horror is a uh, lifestyle for me. <laughs> it's a lifestyle choice. Well, I'm, I'm sitting around here and I see five different horror um, blocks that are just sitting around my house with different... Just different things. All the horror novels on your shelves. All the horror movies, video games. My son has a Cthulhu piggy bank. Yeah, and a Cthulhu children's book that's worth hundreds of dollars now. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was just kind of weird for me during the during October where everybody else was like, oh, we're going to do our horror movie marathons. I ended up sitting down and watching horror television instead. <laughs> So I, I completed like three or four seasons worth of horror television starting at the beginning of a season and like, wow. so that that's mostly what I did during the Halloween season. Uh, did you watch anything special like Halloween related? Um, probably the s- most special thing that we watched was we, uh, for, we were over at Aaron's mom's and I had brought like a bunch of movies just cause it was the Saturday before Halloween, and I'll talk about another one of the movies later, but uh, the one that uh, she always watches on Halloween is Arsenic and Old Lace. Okay. And uh, uh, I know I'd seen it before, because we had watched, we'd gotten a copy of it a couple years before, and I'd never seen it, so we watched it. But re-watching it, I was like, this is amazing. Like, as far as like the <laughs> well-craftedness of the script like as far as like constant reversals like just constant like overlapping layers of complex reversals that to play out the plot like holy shit if someone did this right now i mean there's kind of the closest thing is probably edgar wright movies but if someone took the time to write a really layered intense complicated dense well thought out horror movie that like arsenic and old lace but update it with all the scares and stuff it'd be fucking legendary immediately like it would be immediate like everyone would be like finally finally but that's probably the most uh specific uh halloween tradition that we've kind of kept going on it's Okay. Arsenic and old lace. Now I'm looking forward to watching it every year and noticing more details. <laughs> <laughs> I know an old an old movie with it stars Cary Grant, and so you know, you know, yeah, that's such a. I do want to. We we didn't watch our House on Haunted Hill, the original with Vincent Price, again, but I need to watch. I need to remember that that has to be a yearly thing because I love that cheesy. Oh no! Uh, instead, you just should watch the '97 version. Obviously, it's superior in every way. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that in the Boots to Reboots? It is not. Oh it, man. It, it, w- it probably will be he at some point. He should do it. 
because that would be a perfect one. The one I need to watch is the original Haunting. Oh, the, yeah, the or haunt, Haunting. Yeah. Uh, because the lady that wrote the novel, the Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Which amazingly came out the same year that House on Haunted Hill was was released. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's there's also um, if I remember right, there's also a adaptation called The Legend of Hell House, which is also yeah. same sort of th- yeah. like not exactly, but same sort of thing as The Haunting. I need to look up her name because I feel like she has been more influential in horror than a lot of people give her credit. Right. Is it Shirley Jackson, babe? Who wrote uh, The Haunting of Hill House? Shirley Jackson. Okay. But yeah, the uh, Legend of Hell House is one of those. Um, I think they've remade it a couple years ago as well. Um, that one's a little bit different, but still really good from like 70s. Yeah, The Haunting of Hill House. Shirley Jackson. That's her name. I didn't want to forget her name because, I mean, she's obviously been erased enough from uh, history right. now, she died really young. she died in 65 so. oh, okay well it's the um that's kind of the i don't know on boots to reboots like i ended up watching the texas chainsaw massacre one it was like oh okay like that was one of those where he completely broke like the family which one is better in eating like that i think that might be where he started doing that because before it was just kind of like, oh, here's kind of my overall impressions. We're going to go yeah. through the timeline. And then he started breaking it down based off category. Like, you know, how's the story? Well, you know, I think this one would. Da, 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 da. And Which is a fascinating way to actually break down, like, is this a good reboot or not? You know? Right. It, does, it li- does it live up to surpass or not equal? You know? Which kind of seems to be where he goes. He's like... It's good in these, it, it surpasses it in these marks, but it totally fails on these ones, so, you know. But, yeah, my one complaint with it is, depending on the episode, um, like, he actually has a kind of, I obviously am not a huge fan of his skits. Um, but I felt like that was the part that made it interesting, because it was... Well, his skits actually do move beyond multiple episodes, but they're like I watched the Omen one, and they had a whole thing about how no, it wasn't the Omen. It was Amityville Horror, where you know, well, it'd be kind of hard to make a phantom smell like in a movie, and there's a whole skit of one of his versions laying on the couch, and the other version looking over his shoulder, approaching him with his ass out, <laughs> farting in the other one's face, and the other one licking it out of the air, and I'm just like, come on, really, dude. But, oh, that's terrible. Um, but the thing now, I did like the one in the Dawn of the Dead where he's like, because everything is more important. You do it in slow mo, and it's a guy running to poop. Yeah, you know, um, taking. You know, it's just I was like, that was clever because mundane things done in slow mo. Right. Um, he. The thing is, is that depending on the end of the episode, there are certain episodes where. He actually takes the DVD, the cover art, and everything, and smashes it with his boot. Then there's, and that that one's immensely satisfying. Just because just that initial one-two stomp where it crushes it, but then there I've noticed more recently, or in the more recent ones I've watched, 
um, he shows you the disc, but the silver side is facing the camera instead of the front label of it. And he just puts it silver side up on the ground and starts kind of coyly stomping it. And then it jump cuts to it actually being shattered and him stomping on it a bit more like it's not actually the... Like, you don't actually see him destroying the disc. It's more like, uh, this is more of a, uh, what's the word? Movie version where it, 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 it's, it's probably the same disc he's destroying every time. Yeah, but he'll pop up, and be, you know. Like, he does do the same thing, like the same, what's the word? Um, Beats. No, he does have the video version where he just repeats it every, like, whenever he's putting on the boots. It's the same jump cuts every time, oh, okay, so yeah. he is reusing that. But, yeah, it's just kind of weird that it's like, okay, there's these immensely gratifying ones where he's actually stomping the DVD case, and then he's probably like, I probably shouldn't do that. This is going to get expensive, or I, I, I still want to keep these shitty reboots. Like, I don't want to have to buy it again. <laughs> Which is probably exactly right. why it's become what it is. Yeah, but it's just going to... Unlike uh, in the best of the worst for Red Letter Media, they do the... Um, I don't, I, I can't remember if in the last couple they still do it, but there for a while, like whatever was the worst of the worst, every time they would destroy it every time. Like it was like, nope, this movie does not deserve to have a, deserves to have one less copy in existence. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I had somebody recommend me red letter media again and i tried them again and i just cannot get into them i can see it uh because i feel like i feel like the person you're gonna have a hard time getting past is mike stokas which one does he look like the the bigger guy with black hair yes like i I, his humor is super dry sometimes even to the point that like people in the like video with him don't know he's joking well, I mean, that's yeah. kind of the same thing with, like, watching the Zach Galifianakis Between Two Ferns, yeah. where you're watching and you're going, Does, is Hillary in on the joke, or is she actually getting pissed off? Well, knowing about what I know about Z- Between Two Ferns, she's in on the joke. You're right, I know, so, but... Because the fact that they actually, like, did Obama's at the White House... Oh, yeah. Like, no, the, the Obama one, like, having him talk about that later was, like... Oh, that's really interesting. Like, and Obama, you can tell, isn't on the joke. Like, he's getting the good burns in. He's doing all that. And it was the Hillary and a couple other ones where you watch and just go, Is she that good of an actress? Um, but I can also say that, like, probably being one of those people where you're, like, constantly faced with, like, ridicule and then someone actually openly ridiculing you is probably really frustrating. Right. To right. the point of, like, you just can't control yourself, like, right, even right. though you're supposed to be like holding back. I immediately regret this. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, like that was probably a real life. Right, and that—that's what I was saying. You it's know, just like, like that moment. That was probably real. That yeah. was probably the one real moment out of the whole thing. Like, right. So then, I don't know. The as I said, the with the red letter media, like I watched their um, their take on the. Star Wars Rogue One last trailer. I don't know if you've watched that video, but it it's just like, hey, the 29,000 reaction to this video. Yeah. Don't want uh, Stormtrooper? Stormtrooper. Which which I love some of that stuff cuz it's very much my sense of humor, like right, the sensibility. Yeah. I feel like the ones you would like are the f- early Mr. Plinkett stuff. 
I watched and one of them and it didn't do anything for me. You would really, I, I feel like you would really like the Phantom Menace, the way he breaks it down, the way he, and also the fact that there, the fact that Mr. Plinkett in that one is still like a, a some sort of weird old guy who mur- captures women and murders people. Okay, that's good, like good. a subplot in the. <laughs> it's like a subplot within this deconstruction of the Phantom Menace, right? And it runs through the fir- the 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 prequels. It's not so much. In the most recent one, but I also feel like you would like best of the worst, just because all they do is watch bad movies mostly, and like it's one of those things of like occasionally would be like okay I do want to watch that one, right? But thank you for saving me from watching any of these. <laughs> the um, the one I was told to watch was their box office wrap up. That was that one was actually really interesting. Just like. Do it the one for the Ghostbusters or Suicide Squad, you know, all those and just, yeah. okay, well, maybe, but I kind of feel like, I don't, I don't know. I haven't watched those yet, but kind of still just go to Midnight's Edge for whatever. Yeah. I just feel like Mike's, Mike's humor is probably not yours. Right. But I think the one thing they would like is the first Mr. Plinkett Phantom Menace. So that was the thing that made them famous. Right. Was they right. did this <laughs> multi this hour and a half long deconstruction of uh of the phantom menace to the point that like like most people point to it as like the beginning of some of like the real critical analysis of the star wars trilogy it's like okay some people say like it's like a it's one of the greatest pieces of film criticism and it's a thing that involves a subplot of the character who's giving the review kidnapping and murdering women as you do you know because you know that makes sense of course of (laughs) course so uh what have you been consuming uh first thing i want to start off with based on our uh, uh relative obsession with satoshi Kone. Um, specifically the Tony Zhao analysis of the things that Satoshi Kon did. I've read Slaughterhouse Five and I watched the movie. Okay. Um, if you don't, if you've never read Slaughterhouse Five, watch or watch the movie. I understand why you might have not watched the movie. If you haven't read the book, I feel bad that I didn't read this book earlier. Like, it's one of those, I should have read this when I was 18 and be rereading it now instead of reading it for the first time. Right. Um, which I've done with some other Vonnegut books, but... The template for really good time travel is all in Slaughterhouse-Five. Okay. The fact that Slaughterhouse-Five can also be possibly read as an old man suffering from dementia losing his mind is the beautiful fact you can read it from both ways nice you can read it as a pure full-on science fiction this guy really was abducted by aliens this guy really was really comes unstuck from time this guy really floats back and forth through different spots of his life at random with no control or it's a guy suffering from dementia or alzheimer's and uh, after an accident late in life. But uh, holy shit, it's amazing. <laughs> um, 
watching the film uh the film was directed by george roy hill who made small not super very important movies like butch cassidy and the sundance kid and the sting okay <laughs> which butch cassidy and Sundance skins on like every top 100 best movies of the 20th century basically list you know as you do you know and this and then he made slaughterhouse five and then he made the sting yeah <laughs> And somehow Slaughterhouse-Five has gotten completely lost uh, to time in a lot of ways. It doesn't really have any big stars or big actors in it, which might be why it's kind of been lost to time. Um, it's great movie, great adaptation, too. Like, even though they had to restructure some stuff, put different events in different parts of the movie, you know, versus where they are in the book. But overall, I feel like it's a it's a great great adaptation um i'm not really sure uh have you oh have you watched the uh kyle calligren uh breakdown of of inception um no i the only one i really got into was the um cloud atlas no, not I haven't watched any of his stuff. Uh-huh. No, I was thinking the Fridge Logic Inception. Uh, so, what's interesting about the uh, the Kyle Calgren Cal- is that he breaks down the four main influences on uh, on Inception, specifically uh, with sorry, now I have to find the piece of paper that I wrote that on. Uh, the fact that you have Satoshi Kone, James Bond, David Lynch, Jean, Jean Cocteau, and Ziga Vertov uh, as like different direct influences on the reason why Inception works. Okay. And the fact of like kind of Satoshi Kone's crazy edits and jumps and cuts and stuff. But uh, the fact that Slaughterhouse-Five was such an important influence on him, like... There's one moment where he gets a puppy. He's chasing the puppy around. It changes season without cutting. I mean, cutting, you know, without right. cutting, changes season. The dog's older. Cuts again, changes season, or doesn't cut, changes season. The dog's even older. Like, and it's this, like, I was like, oh my God, that's that's Satoshi Kone. That right there, it's like... That is everything, and some of the crazy cross cuts between like him being in the war, being in World War Two. The book's about a guy surviving the firebombing of Dresden because Kurt Vonnegut really did that, uh, right? Um, and the opening chapter is actually kind of from Kurt Vonnegut's perspective about the whole thing. The first chapter and the last chapter aren't from Billy Pilgrim, who's the main character's perspective. They're from Kurt Vonnegut's perspective about writing the book, and uh, but then the second chapter dives right into Billy Pilgrim and who Billy Pilgrim is and his uh, jumping through his unstuckness from time. Right. And uh, but completely fascinating. Um, do we want to do the round robin thing? Yeah, so. sure. Well, the one of the things that I've. Uh, checked out recently it's netflix original called i am the pretty thing that lives in the house which he texted me and i'm assuming either a day while i was watching while you're watching like (laughs) like i watched that opening scene and went 
holy shit, like, I held off recommending it to a few people until I finished it. But but you were like, watch this. Yeah, watch you, you, need to, you need to check this out. It's interesting what they're doing. Um, I'm not going to get into details about it just because it just came out. It's something everybody has access to because just about everybody's on Netflix or has a friend who's on Netflix that they can steal their account for. <laughs> Shh, don't tell them. And, um, but it, the, it's dire- written and directed by Anthony Perkins' son, Osgood Perkins. So he's a little, you know, Anthony Perkins is a little important in yeah, just history. A, a little, bit, a little bit, tiny bit. But um, the closest thing I can relate it to would be, um, it's probably a modern day Southern Gothic horror movie. Okay. Like it's very much built on tension rather than jump scares. So kind of like how True Detective was the first uh, season. Yeah, yeah. It's um not in the not the yeah exact yeah same, yeah. But, but it's like it's mood, um, mood and atmosphere yeah. style. Uh, uh, very very little goes on, but very similar to like Jane Eyre, um, The Innocents, The Others. All those type of Crimson Peak, all those types of movies, um, where it's more about how they tell the story as opposed to like the well, it's point of view. It's you know the lead character is um, can't remember the actress's name, but she played Alice in Luther, which she was awesome in Luther. So yeah, she's awesome in just about everything she's in. But um, I'll have her name in just a second. She, um, Ruth Wilson is her name, and she is a hospice worker working at, in the house of this old horror writer. Interesting. And what she says in the opening is that the, this, um, aging female horror writer near death had written 13 novels and the lead character had read nine words out of one book <laughs> and I was already sick to her stomach. So, you know, very kind of frail hospice worker in what seems to be a haunted house. So that's the setup and kind of the feel you have through the entire thing of what the fuck's going on here. Well, that opening shot that you showed oh. me is terrific. Oh, yeah. Like, I was like... Like, I was having trouble concentrating on the narration because I was just like, what is this shot? Yeah. Holy shit. How awesome is this as a setup? (laughs) And how is this as an opening image, too? Just like. Yeah. um, Yeah. All I could think of was the sentiments. Okay. We start, you know, five minutes of narration. But it's still like, fuck it. This is an amazing shot. Like, it doesn't matter that this starts with narration. This yeah. is this tells you everything you need to know. Of course, uh, having listened to the 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 Cinema Sins podcast right. quite a bit recently, um, sometimes I don't understand what they bitch about. Like, <laughs> I, I feel mean, like they're just tired of certain things, right? More than they are like. They're never looking at it from the perspective as of as they're always looking at it from the perspective of as people who 
worked in movie theaters who watch movies all the time and most of what they watch is the most same stuff. Their so media awful. is entirely movies. Right. You know, they may listen to music, they may read books, but mostly most of their entire media engagement is movies. I'm trying to remember what it was. There was one of the CinemaSins I watched recently. I'm not sure. It might have been even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. I'm not sure. But it was one of, you know, their things. And it was just another one where it's like, if you had paid any attention to the movie, even a passing interest in, you know, whatever, you would know, like, it, the Tangled one had a thing like, she's traveled three days away and sees this random horse and then is on the back. It's like, no, she literally just left. And sees a horse nearby going, oh, where's your rider? And that's why she goes home. She hasn't even made it out. Three days have not passed. Yeah. That's evident. Like, obviously, this is a team well, of riders that are watching well, it. And what, what also happens is, as Jeremy has pointed out on a couple of the podcasts, like, they're intentionally ignorant. Like, the character of CinemaSins is a character. Okay. It's supposed to be the guy in the basement who bitches about, who does nothing but bitch about movies. But the problem is, is they also insert real things that they really ir- that really irritate them about movies. Right. Combined with intentionally ignorant statements about movies. But it's all to the point that it's like you're an idiot to the point that you just think that the character is an idiot. Well, to me, it's more I all, the thing I think of because I know how these things work is that they have a team of writers. Yeah. And this is one writer misconstruing something or not paying attention and be like, what the fuck? Yeah. And not that it's a character, but that it's a team of writers behind yeah, this and, voice. And they do have a team of writers. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's... And Bobby Burns, uh, if you've ever seen any of his YouTube videos. No. There's sometimes you'll, you'll watch cinemas and you'll be like, oh, there's the Bobby Burns line. Yeah. There's uh, the Bobby Burns sim. sim. Um, that's one of the things I like about watching Adam Ruins Everything is that... They regularly go out of their way to just go, oh, no, this is just a TV show. And, yeah. like, I'm just the mouthpiece. Like, here's my team of writers. Yeah. Like, I don't know this shit. Yeah, but also the the way they play with sources and the way they make sure that, like, everything it has a point. Like, it's very focused. Right. And there's never, like, intentionally ignorant things shoved in between oh, no, things no. that actually are lucid, salient points. Yeah. Now the the best thing that Adam ruins everything does in between their salient points is do the little skit gag things like them getting sucked into the credit card reader and the pharmacy tech screaming like a little girl, yeah. and <laughs> then it cuts to the next portion of it. And it's like, okay, cool. I I yeah. see what you did there. Like yeah. I see you. I see you. I understand. So, oh. so uh, one thing. Uh, have you watched Orphan Black yet? I'm. I watched the first two seasons. We just finally made it through the second one. Okay, um, so with that big, the big twist there. Holy fucking shit! That second season's amazing. Like, just absolutely. Like, I feel like those first two seasons, they could have. You could have. That could even have been the end. Like, the second season is so good. Right. And right. it ends on such such a moment, and kind of a cliffhanger, but such a great moment. That like that could have been the end. It could have, like, it, it would have been satisfying even if it, I didn't know that there were several more seasons to watch. Right. Like, and that's kind of how I felt about Californication. Like, the first, you know, that first season we haven't watched past that first season because you you basically it, said like 
the first season is perfect. It is, and it is. And uh, um, the three, you think you said there's season four? Yeah, that's it. Which is the Dexter one? Though I, I would say, if you watch season four, you have to watch season five just well, because you have to see the fallout. Yeah, yeah. No, De- I mean Dexter, I watched to the very end. Yeah. But um, I, but no, but Californication, it's the last two seasons. I wouldn't. I would tell people not to watch the last two seasons of Dexter. Um, the Russian mob season was the or whatever that I think that's it. But that was the last time, last season I really remember enjoying. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, with Californication, the first season's perfect. Yeah. It could have ended there. Um, and then season four ends with the characters in such disrepair at that point that you go, this is perfect as well. And that's where I stopped. Um, Katie went to season seven. And finishing, she's like, "Oh, it's totally worth watching the rest of it. I loved it." And da 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 da. And I'm like, "I'm good with ending at season four. Yeah. Like, I don't need another Dexter where the last season you're just like, what the, what, what the fuck did you guys just do? Or you're just like always like, why, why like, did you make that mistake? Well, the whole <laughs> the whole plot line of uh, his sister falling in love with him. Just, God, why? Completely unnecessary. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so what'd you basically only put in there as some sort of weird reference to the fact that those two people in real life had right. fallen in love yeah. and married and gotten divorced before they shot that season? <sighs> <laughs> um, but the reason why I want to bring up Orphan Black is there is a couple of important moments. Other than Tatiana Maslani, holy shit. I'm glad she won an Emmy this year. I hope she goes on to have a bigger, great career because this lady is super talented. So, um, My thing on there, I wish it had been this, but it wasn't, is the male clone that they reveal at the end. I wish it had been um, her brother. Yeah, I, I actually from the back shot, I almost thought it was Fee for a second. Yeah, yeah. and... I was like, oh, it would be so good to see him in multiple roles and doing this whole thing. And then it's the other guy. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I can I, I can get behind this. Yeah. But I wish it had been that. Yeah. I was almost thinking it was going to be Fee. I was like, oh, God, they're going to do Fee. It's going to be Bayard. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is, is the two people who created that show are Graham Mason and John Fawcett. Graham Mason was co-writer on a little tiny little tiny movie called cube uh which i've never seen but i have i obviously have to remedy this because there's two other things you you don't need to watch hypercube which is number two no but you could you do need to watch cube zero cube zero cube and cube zero but Uh not hypercube okay um because hypercube is a um sequel that creates it's quantum mechanics and then um cube zero is a prequel that shows um, shows characters that work around the or like kind of work as part of the cube system or whatever it okay, is. Okay, so kind of like how Kevin in the Woods shows you yeah, the behind the exactly. scenes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, if Cube and Cube Zero were one movie, it would kind of be it the Kevin sense. in the Woods thing. Like it, it's a perfect thing of like these people dealing with the existential quandaries of the cube. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. so um, which the cube was directly influenced by a Twilight Zone episode. Interesting. Called Five Characters in Search of an Ending. 
uh, which I haven't I haven't seen I haven't watched it yet, but it's the title of it is based on six characters in search of an author. Um, but the other creator, Grammy, uh, John Fawcett, directed a little werewolf movie that's become quite a cult hit called Ginger Snaps. Oh, okay. He directed the first Ginger Snaps. Okay, the five characters in search of an ending. Yeah, that's where they're um, stuck in the bottom of a. Um, like they're all uh, dolls and a. In that, a box. That's the that's, that's the, twist. the reveal. Yeah, because I, I yeah as soon as you said that I was like wait a minute that's the one with the clown and the thing and they're in the pail and they're actually like discount toys. But uh, the guy who directed the cube or cube was Vincenzo Natali, right? Who you as we talked before he you directed Splice. The movie Splice, which is kind of like Species, isn't it? Um, but he also... Weirder, yes. Uh, he directed a lot of episodes of Hannibal. Oh, what? He's at least directed one episode of Westworld. Interesting. I think the most recent one per this date, which is like episode five or something. Uh, he's directed episodes of The Strain. He also is the the director of the first the, the of the pilot for American Gods. Okay, nice. Yeah. Like, so, I, I enjoy that director. Like, Yeah, I'm like, uh, I was like, apparently I need to watch Cuban Splice because I've missed out on Vincenzo. Um, the one thing I will say about um, about Splice is there is an event that happens about halfway to two-thirds into the movie that either you're completely with it or the movie completely loses you. <laughs> it's one of the two. It's one of those. Yeah, where you're just like, um, yeah, this is this is okay, okay, yeah, I, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. I'm, I get it. But, uh, but the fact that like these people had worked all on the same, had worked on Cube. And then the two guys, Graham Mason and John Fawcett, created Orphan Black. And then Machenza Natali, I think this last season or season four, he actually directed an episode of Orphan Black. Um, and uh, Vincenzo Natali also was the art director or storyboard artist for Ginger Snaps. Yeah. So they've all worked together a lot. So they're very... And uh, Oh, he, he did an episode of uh, Luke Cage as well. Oh. Well... I, Luke Cage, yet again, something I need to jump jump down the rabbit hole of. Oh, he also did um, Haunt. He did Cipher, which is another one of those weird, um, super twisty, like sci fi corporate intrigue movies. Hmm. He also did a movie called Haunter, which um, stars. We were talking beforehand about um, Pontypool. Yeah. And actually, the villain in Haunter is Stephen McHattie, who is the lead guy in... So apparently, Vicenza Natale just needs to be on our radar constantly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and actually, in Haunter, Haunter is on Netflix, totally worth watching. It's it's an interesting haunted house movie, but he um, there is a specific shot of him in the movie where he looks like the Joker. Wow. Which is, I, I saw that and went, he had, like, before they cast Jared Leto, I went, Stephen McCaddy has to be, you know, the 60-year-old Joker who is still, like... If they ever did the Dark Knight Returns, that would, he would he would have been the... He would he would have perfectly movie. have been that. He should have been that in the Batman v. Supes. Like, that, it, because fucking Batman is in his 40s, 
Yeah. Joker's been around just as long and is older than him usually, you know, yeah. just like come on, he's perfect. He's per- conditions are perfect. <laughs> conditions point to perfect. So, yeah. Um but so but if you have not watched Orphan Black, watch Orphan Black. Obviously these creators are super talented and you should get behind them and they're doing fantastic things. Holy fuck. <laughs> so the I've finally got caught up in the Wheel of Time series. I'm on book four right now. Uh, Wheel of Time is a series of books by Robert Jordan, which was a pen name. I can't remember the author's real name at the moment, but it's one of those that was supposed to be four books long, ended up extending out to 15 books with the last three written by Brandon Sanderson because um, Robert Jordan, if I remember right, got cancer and ended up dying. But before his death, he um, worked extensively with Brandon Sanderson to plot out, gave gave him all his notes, told him exactly where he wanted the books to go, what was going to happen, everything. So Brandon Sanderson kind of stepped up. So it's kind of like how... uh, the guy that wrote Devil's Advocate took over V.C. Andrews's books. Right, after right. She died. Yeah, and um, kind of how um, the Robert Ludlum books have continued yeah. on. Tom um, Clancy too. Yeah. Um, be, but so the basic idea of the Wheel of Time is that a thousand years before bad shit went down and the world was br- um, broken. And since then, there are um, kind of these B'nai Gesserit women called the um, Aes Sedai who can tap into one half of the true source of magic and do all this crazy shit. There is a male version of it, but any man who, since the breaking of the world, any man who channels is going um, goes insane. So they gentle them or... You know, they either kill them or they just cut them off from the source, which makes them eventually just kind of die from heartbreak sort of thing. They don't go that's insane. That's the gentling? Yeah, that's the gentling is that they are still alive, but they can't touch the true source anymore. It'd be like Jedi's not being able to use the force anymore and just being completely fucked up by which it. Which is a, definitely something they've not explored in the films. I don't know if they've explored I'm sure someone explored it in the novels. Right. There was only like 3,000 fucking novels written as side stories to Star Wars. So, Right. So the idea, like the first book for the first half of it is so much ripping on Tolkien that I thought. And it sounds like Frank Herbert, too. A little bit. Yeah. That, I mean, I specifically threw in the B'nai Gesserit, which is. Yeah. Well, um, but I mean, even from describing them, I would have said the same thing. So the. Um, the thing with to tell you how much it is, it feels like a Tolkien story. They're in a field, or they're they're in a kind of um, rural rural area filled with farms and everything called Emmons Field, where you have three main characters who are one of them is kind of the gambler who likes fraternizing with women. Uh, one's a blacksmith, the other is a farmer. That. They kind of get up to shenanigans. It's right around the situ- the um, a celebration. 
they have a old gleeman with a white beard and long mustaches called Tom who comes in and tells stories about the outside world. Huh. Wow. Um, there, yeah, that sounds way like Tolkien. Like it, it's so, so much it that I thought that the six foot five lead character was a hobbit for the first half of the book. <laughs> the six foot five lead character. Is that like when you first read Jurassic Park and after watching the movie and you're like, you can't not see Sam Neill right, for right, like half yeah. the book until he's like, and in his uh, Bermuda shorts, uh, Hawaiian shirt, his fat belly, and his big beard, and you're like, okay, that's not fucking Sam Neill. Right, right, right. Uh, why do I keep picturing Sam Neill? <laughs> well, it's it's also like um, Norman Bates mentioning Anthony Perkins earlier yeah. is supposed to be kind of a middle aged, overweight guy. Um, yeah, he's this really. If you if you watch the Boots to Reboots, he suggests, um, um, oh, what was his name? Um, Toby Jones. That name sounds really familiar. He was the assistant to Red Skull in Captain America, who was in oh, the computer. Yeah. He played Hitchcock in the non. The Hitchcock movie that nobody liked because yeah. it basically ripped on Hitchcock or something. Right. Um, I didn't watch it because a bunch of Hitchcock people said it was really bad, like Hitchcock fans. Oh, the um, but anyway, so the they end up coming or they have these um, people come to town that are kind of like one of them's like Strider or is kind of like Aragorn, Aragorn, sorry. Um, that is a warder for the Aes Sedai. He has pledged himself to the Aes Sedai. The whole idea is that these three kids are all Manethrin. They can weave the pattern. Um, essentially, they can use the weirding way. <laughs> um, they can't. Only one of them is supposed to be able to channel, but they don't know which because all three were born around the same time. They're all Manethrin, which means that the pattern of the world weaves around them. So whatever they do, they end up affecting the world around them, no matter where they're at. And then they're, basically the scouring of the Shire happens with them still there and then them escaping. Wow. Trying to head towards the capital so that they can figure it out. Um, only to f- like all of them are having nightmares. At one point, they go to an old city and um, Shadar Logoth, where one of the characters steals a dagger. He from there and starts hiding it and becomes sick for the first two novels. Wow. Almost to the point two, of death. Two whole novels. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like it, it doesn't like guarantee these are not like 200 page novels. Oh, or like no, 500 no. page books. Or um, something. But he essentially, he, it's just that it's kind of like the ring sickness. Um, yeah. So it's, it's got all this stuff that I was watching. Like for the first half, I was just like, are you fucking like this is this is completely just Tolkien sh- bullshit, and it's fifteen books long, and then something it's fifteen ha- books of Tolkien bullshit, <laughs> and I'm not a Tolkien fan. Like I, I I still have not read Lord of the Rings. Like I get to I get to the Council of Elrond and fall apart. Like I can't. I got past the Council of Elrond and was so tired by the Council of <laughs> Elrond that I could not continue the book. And that's like my third time trying to read it. Um, but at one point in it, it finally turned and I went, okay, like you're, you're doing some cool things. Like I, I'm enjoying this. Um, whenever things shit gets real, it gets real super fast. 
And by the end of the first book, the main character, the six foot five character, um, he is able to wield the true power and is able to defeat like one of the bad guys by seeing the basically the black cord of power that's tying him to the world and sh- cutting it. Interesting. And then he comes out, and in the second book, they just straight up say, "Hey, you're the Dragon Reborn." Like everybody it's one of those like he doesn't believe he is he's trying to convince people he's not he ends up being talking like uh, he ends up going to the most powerful woman the most powerful Aes Sedai the one who runs the entire organization and while they're kind of by themselves he goes like why are you interested in me she goes because you're the dragon reborn you're meant to break the world again and like restart this all over again and he's like i don't want to be neo <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's a it's a it's essentially that but all three of them well i mean the, the whole neo yeah. story is just yeah there. um all three of them um are there sorry the blood of manetherin they're all talviran which means that the pattern weaves around them anyway like one of them he um becomes what is it called? Like, um, Brand is and Game of Thrones. I'm watching the Game okay. of Thrones. Okay. Um, I'm no hope. He, he, I can hear Dave screaming. <laughs> his eyes turn gold and he's able to um, telepathically communicate with wolves. Interesting. You know, so he starts having these dreams and there's these multiple different Ajas, which all the women, all the female Aes Sedai dress in their colors of their Aja so like the green are lustful like they they can get married and have sex there's the whites that you know there's the browns that are super studious the reds hate women or sorry hate men hate all men and like you do not basically there's people within the Aes Sedai that would kill the lead character if they knew what he was before he's fulfilled enough prophecies to continue forward and even then would still try to kill him and then they whisper that there's this black Aja that worships the dark, the Lord of Darkness. And in the third book, the two of the lead characters are tasked with hunting down all these, um, with hunting down all these sisters that have left as Black Aja, um, and finally kind of proclaim themselves as that. Kind of everybody goes, oh, the Black Aja doesn't exist. And then these twelve leave, kill a bunch of people, and then they're tasked with having ultimate not being Aes Sedai yet being accepted and having to try and figure out who these women are who else are Black Aja and hunt down these women and kill them you know it's like it gets super intricate it's there's definitely moments where it's just like oh shit like they gotten to the point where they just say oh the murder all are in the room and you go or sorry they go, there's three Murdraw in this room, and you just... Okay, fuck, so how, how are they going to... How are they going to survive? Are they gonna survive? Yeah, um, and Murdar, basically, um, the ring wraiths. Yeah, that's are, kind of... Or, de- or Dementors. Yeah. Um, black eyeless sockets that move around like snakes. When they um, speak, it's like leather crackling. You know, stuff like that. Um, trying to think if there was anything more that was just like because there's so many books and so much stuff, the one thing he does is do a great job of tying everything together. Um, in the first book, you meet a village of tinkerers and they talk about how they have, um, like they have all these rituals where the person who knows them says, Oh, you know, the guy who runs the tinkerers comes up and says, are you here to sing the song with us? 
and the guy who knows all the customs says, I do not know the song, but, you know, hopefully we'll, you'll be able to find it one day. Okay, let's break bread. And before he leaves, so, you know, in the age of light, you know, hope you find the song sort of thing. I'm now on book four. There is a separate group called, um, or basically they are veiled masters of the spear that they are complete badasses. Like even whenever they're surprised, they still end up killing 50 people to their one, almost Spartans with the way that they've, um, in book four, you actually, the lead character kind of fulfilling his prophecy of being the dragon reborn actually works back by generation to the breaking of a world a thousand years before. And you get to see how you see them as the badasses and then go back to the point where, oh, hey, they're a split sect and this woman comes to comes to town to get back her kid and they end up breaking the spear and kind of going, wait, this is actually like cutting the spear into a quarter step, you know, cutting it down makes me go super fast and I could do a whole lot more with this. Cool. And then they move back to the group that accidentally killed somebody while trying to get back their family and are kicked out and how they become sect. And then they move back to the completely pacifist group that is tasked with keeping these relics. And then they move back and move back and move back to where you see their original purpose, which was pacifists that used magic to help grow stuff in the world. And then they keep, you know, keep moving back until the breaking of the world. A completely separate character that doesn't know anything about this meets up with those tinkerers again. And as you're talking to them, you go, oh, this is the original group that, you know, this is the group we met in the first book, but they're actually the originals that if they know the song, they can actually rebuild the entire world if they can learn the song and the one person that knows the song is this character in a different part of the world who has seen it because he is the dragon reborn. Like it, as soon as I realized I was like chills just sprang up over my entire body. just like, <gasps> I see what you did there. Are you feeling, are you feeling inspired? Are you... Um, there, there is definitely a little bit of inspiration in reading it, but it is also, well, I know, but I'm just saying, like, but, but just the complexity of the plot. The oh way, yeah. Yeah. Plot. It definitely speaks to me. Yeah. As I was a... like, Cause this very much sounds like the type of like, it takes like five books or six books, but you get the whole story. And when you get the whole story, you're like, fuck, fuck. Kinda. It definitely makes me kind of go, okay. Like, with I'm I'm actually starting to write notes again and everything for the sequel to of Gods and Madness, and it kind of makes me go, okay, I had all these plans for the world, I have a map, I have all that stuff, but it really doesn't come into play in the first book. So I can pretty much throw out everything that I had established in my mind, and just build the world around it and make it yeah. deeper and. You know, it's Hunger Games. When we got to the end of the third book, Katie went, man, can you believe like she had all this thought out from the first? And I went, no, she didn't. If you read the first book, none of this is in there. It's literally the second and the third book. It's awesome how far it goes in the second and the third well, book. I've only, I've only read the first book, but I will say that like knowing where the story goes, just because you can't escape the fucking movies, or you couldn't escape the movies, um, but just knowing... And having read the first book, I was like, this is a really, well, like, there's stuff that, like, leads into, I have read, sorry, I've read the first half of the second book. Right. Um, but there's stuff that leads into it, but realistically, the book, the first book is very self-contained. Right. 
there's very few characters that hold over. There's very few people that survive. There's very few. There's stuff she does that has resonance throughout right. the books. But well, um, as somebody who just watched, I, I always tell people the Hunger Games is Evil Dead to Catching Fire is Evil Dead Two. <laughs> Where it's a reboot slash uh, re, it's a reimagining through a different lens. But it still years u- later. But it still uses <laughs> your knowledge. It still uses your knowledge of the first to boost what is going on in the second. Um, I just had some friends over and we watched the reboot, and we were going to watch Evil Dead One because my but Zach was just like, "Hey, this is this is what they were trying to do with the original Evil Dead." You know, now they've done it with Evil Dead 2013, just made it super gory, like they just didn't have the effects budget or anything like do that. And I was just in there, I was like, hey, do you want to just watch Evil Dead 2, which is the fun, less gory, yeah. like still gory, but more comedic version? She's yeah. like, yeah, I appreciate having the choice. Yeah, we'll watch two. And we just jumped into two, and I was like, wow, this really makes little sense if you have not seen the first one, and we've only watched the reboot with her. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, I I want to explain it, but fuck it, we'll go with we'll go with it. And uh, but I will say, um, I feel like from I watched the first couple episodes of the first season of Ash versus Evil Dead last year, mm-hmm. and I will say that the show feels more like Evil Dead Two than it does like Army of Darkness or okay. Evil Dead One. Like it's the same kind of comedic tone. But brutal violence, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> Where, yeah, I, I have it over there. It was one of those where I was like, okay, I, we need to watch all these together, and then I'll we can I'll start watching this. Um, but it was also me trying to finish all the other horror television that I watched. So, what uh, what else do you have for us, Nathan? Uh, so I, uh, as part of the Halloween Watch Fest, uh, we watched Shaun of the Dead. Which I kind of have a theory that they only wrote fifty percent of a movie, and then just palindromed it. Okay. Because literally the midpoint is of the characters walking by their other versions of themselves. Oh, okay. And then everything that happens from there has not almost n- everything has dialogue from previous scenes in a new context. Interesting. Yeah. There, it's not like 100% they only wrote 50% of a movie, but wow. Like they were, they did some expert crafting. I really, I almost want to watch it enough to like maybe write a paper on like palindromes and uh, palindromic form and uh, Shaun of the Dead because it's so fascinating. Well, there's your uh, video essay. There it is. There it is done. Too bad it'll probably take me two years to do it because yeah, it's so not a, not complicated. A, not even joking. <laughs> But the other movie, uh, Aaron, neither uh, my uh, mother-in-law had seen Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. And we watched Pan's Labyrinth, which I hadn't watched in many years. But Yeah, it's been forever since I've seen it. I, I mean, mean I, I've seen, we, she finally saw Kronos this year. Uh, I finally saw Kronos this year. She has, I haven't had her watch Devil's Backbone, so we're kind of watching the trilogy, the original Spanish trilogy of movies out of order. And well, and then, then you also need to just take a sidestep for The Orphanage, which he produced. Yeah, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen The Orphanage or the other one that he produced, that he um, kind of co-wrote the script. It's a remake. I have no idea on that I'll, one. I'll have to look it up while I'm talking about it, but... Uh, but Pan's Labyrinth, if you haven't seen this uh, Academy Award winning film, 
Yeah. There's a Spanish language horror movie that won Academy Awards for makeup, character design, all that stuff. But uh, rewatching it, and recently I've been reading more like fairy tales and stuff. Right. Mostly because I've been trying to get, uh, I've been trying to put that stuff back in my head just as like a basically kind of back to basics story writing, you know, take it to its barest minimum of, you know, oral stories and stuff. But watching it really, uh, really put it back in my head of how much, not only is it like a, fairy tale but it's it's a fairy tale that trying to think of how to word this correctly but it's such a powerful story like that works it's outside of the hero's journey it still has some beats of like Hollywood films right of like the midpoint the lowest point you know and then a third act kind of finale but it abandons some of the tropes of like, and now when she goes to the underworld, she comes back from the underworld. She goes back to the underworld. She comes back from the underworld. She goes back to the underworld. She comes back, which is more fairy tale, the th- rule of three, all that stuff. But this, the the actress that plays Ophelia, uh, Ivana Becero, as a child actress, holy shit, does she turn in just like a tour de force performance. Like, right, right. Like, it's amazing the power of, like, a great performance. And I didn't know this, but apparently the Shannara Chronicles TV show. Right, right. Which is a fantasy novel adaptation of television. Right. She's in that. She's one of the, she's one of the characters. Of okay, the character. yeah, I haven't got a All chance to watch up. that. All, you know. But um, there's this whole undercurrent of reality versus her fantasy world always going through it and how reality is always brutal and violent and vicious even the like not just the soldiers and when people are wounded do they shoot them in the head but even the rebels when people are wounded they shoot them in the head they don't no, nobody pulls any punches in the real world right you know you see when that farm when the farm boy and his dad are caught out after night and the captain vidal you know, bashes his face in. So brutal. <laughs> like I, I like it's just so intense. But there's a little story that she's telling her brother while he's still in the womb of a rose at the top of a mountain that nobody ever reaches. And every night it withers and dies, but regrows, but it grants immortality. While she's giving that the camera pans through the entire house up to Captain Vidal in his blue uniform. And spoilers, but in the finale, when Vidal shoots Ophelia, what happens is in her fantasy world, she becomes the she's the princess of the underworld. Right. And like the weird part about that ending is like it has both a happy ending and a tragic ending simultaneously yeah yeah but there's also another layer of happy ending and tragic ending of captain vidal the rebels refuse to give captain vidal his dying request 
you tell him when his father died, he'll never know your name. Right. But even yeah. in that, that's a happy ending for the boy, while a tragic ending for Vidal. And Ophelia gets both a tragic and a happy ending. And, like, that just fascinates the shit out of me that, like, here's this story that, like, it's not the most dense or complicated story ever told, but it's so well crafted. It's so well molded that, like, there's these, there's this power to it that is just kind of glossed over. And, like, people talk about Pan's Labyrinth, but I feel like people don't talk about Pan's Labyrinth in the way they may. They probably should be talking about Pan's Labyrinth. Like, if there's a top 100 movies of the 20th century, I feel like this movie is already there. Like, it's already in that canon. Not just because it won Academy Awards. Right. But just in the power of its storytelling. Well, I mean, it's the whole reason why, you know, Guillermo del Toro became a household name. And then, you know, that's why Hellboy 2 got such such the boost in effects and everything. Yeah, and like, even though Hellboy 2 didn't do that great financially, look at Pacific Rim, you know? Right. Like, the fact that he was able to not do the Hobbit and do this Pacific Rim, do Pacific Rim and kind of create a whole nother, he's created another franchise, you know, like, and I just wish they would let him, just let him make Hellboy 3, just let him do it. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those, I really want him to do in the Mountains of Madness, but. I want him to do it too. He, he said that uh, Prometheus killed that. Yeah. But I feel like. I feel like Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise wrote a thing in the the book of the book of his sketchbooks, the Cabinet of Curiosities, of like it'll happen one day. Of like he even Tom Cruise wants it to happen, you know, <laughs> like he still wants to do it, and it just really shows you just like, I mean, the amount of imagination that went into the amount of craftsmanship. Like, it was amazing seeing that labyrinth again. Like, and that labyrinth is totally practical. Like, it looks like stone and moss and earth. You know, it doesn't look like... And there's digital effects in the movie, and they oh, still yeah. look pretty good. Yeah. There's some that don't don't look great. Like, some of the fairies don't look great Yeah, and the, but the fairies aren't the thing that you go there yeah, for. Yeah, but the you... fawn and... You the go, pale man, yes, and the fucking the the way the book looks like an illuminated manuscript, and the way the the labyrinth looks, and the beauty and the fucking like just just like love and passion that went into building something that's really not in the movie that much, right? You yeah. know, like it's amazing. Like I don't know, just it really watching it again, it was. I recommend that if you've seen Pan Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth, watch it again. Right. Talk about it. Show it to your mom. You know. <laughs> you just, know. Just like, make sure just, they can get through the you know the bottle sequence. Just, just be like, there's one really brutal scene. There's a couple others, but there's one really brutal scene. That's probably the most brutal. Moment. Don't worry, I'm gonna make sure you keep your eyes open for the whole thing. Hey, if they can make it through Schindler's List, they can make <laughs> it through fucking Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, well, if they can make it through Drive. 
drive is worse than Pan's Labyrinth. It, it is. <laughs> it, it happens is. more than once, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of those things like watching the uh, the Dawn of the Dead. Oh. One, I think ne- maybe it wasn't Dawn of the Dead. No, it was the Maniac one um, on Boots to Reboots. They showed that Tom Savini used his own likeness and what used a shotgun on his own likeness to blow its head <laughs> off. Like he was the guy wielding the shotgun who blew his head off in the movie. <laughs> and he's like, how would that feel? And all I could do was watch it and think, drive. Like that's. <laughs> oh man, just uh, yeah, it was so brutal. It was so brutal. Uh, but like, just a beautiful just beautiful like it's like it there are few films that transcendent you know like that just you can tell like everyone is on their game everyone right all of the makeup people all of the actors all of the you know Guillermo Navarro who directed a bunch of Hannibal episodes as well you know was still the director of photography for Guillermo and uh, like just yeah, I could sit here and rave about Pan's Labyrinth for the next hour. So, so speaking of um, Kronos, um, an, um, an actor that we've already talked about is in The Strain. Oh. Stephen McCaddy. Wow. Is and he in Blade 2, too? I don't know if he's in Blade 2. I mean, I feel like he should have been. He's in just about everything else. You know? <laughs> I mean, if he's already been in these things. Yeah, he's... And Del Toro's aware of him. He probably should have been in Blade 2. I mean, he was even in 300. Wow, what the, what the <laughs> fuck? How many movies has this guy been in? 195. Holy shit. 300 Watchmen, Fountain. He was one of the gangsters at the very beginning of History of Violence. Uh, obviously, the so older he's one. Just, he's this like thread... Among yes. all these films. Yeah. Uh, he was in the 12 Monkeys television show. He was in Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. He played Andrew Borden. Um, yeah, he is in just about everything that you would <laughs> you would look for. He was even in the Tall Man um, horror movie in Immortals. Trying to see. Apparently, Hollywood loves this guy, but yeah. only as a background character. <laughs> well, I mean, he gets like some upfront stuff on yeah. there. I mean, but most of like his big stuff is more. Yeah, he was in 2012. Um, he, as I said, he was Hollis Mason in Watchmen. Pontypool right before that. Shoot him up. As a 300, he was the loyalist. <laughs> he was in the Covenant. I'm just working my way backwards through this thing, but <laughs> Justin, he was um, in Justice League, the television series. He w- he played. He was the voice of the Shade. Wow, this guy's all over the place. He was in the TV series Lex. I don't know if you ever watched that. I never that watched was, it. But really fucking weird. He was even in fucking Walking Walker, Texas Ranger. Wow. In an episode of Poltergeist the Legacy. <laughs> yeah. But you were saying, so. Um, but yeah, so he is in The Strain now on there. I do not see him in Blade 2. So Surprising. Actually, he was even in Beverly Hills Cop 3. Wow. So he's he's been around. Legend. Dairy. Last thing I'll mention, I haven't even got to the beginning of his stuff, but he was in uh, Seinfeld as well. 
His first thing was in 1970. Wow. So he's been a character actor for over 40 years. Yeah. and Almost 50 at this point. Yeah, and almost has 200 credits to his name. So that's almost... I feel like Christopher Lee's was only like 230 or something. It was a lot. But it was like literally a movie or two every year except for like two years out of like 70 years. <laughs> like Christopher Lee had a crazy record almost yeah just like you're like how many movies are you in all the movies all the movies probably with Stephen mccaddy as well there's probably some i mean with that many roles i'm sure there's one that they cross paths um he's actually christopher lee was in 280 280 okay and he still has stuff coming out now like that still has not he's been dead for over a year and still still stuff's coming out um actually two years now i guess it was uh 2015 okay so almost two years june 7th so yeah yeah, been year and a half basically yes sir so um i guess the last thing um i watched uh, two seasons of american horror story which two seasons uh freak show and hotel okay i'm still haven't watched past the first one so so if i was gonna I'm, I'm watching coven currently but if i was to rank them i would say that it's from best to worst in my opinion would be hotel freak show um asylum murder house and coven like murder house took me watching six separate times over like two the years first season it is yeah, um, and hotel is actually a murder house redux. It's an entire hotel where anybody who dies there, it get their souls get stuck inside of the hotel, and except it's actually The Shining in some ways. Um, yeah, it's The Shining meets um, H. H. Holmes's Castle. Like they completely create that where the he built it. The big thing that they changed though is that he the guy who owned it. If anybody questioned him about the plans, instead of deriding them until they quit, would he, kill them. Yeah, he would just kill them and throw them in the chute to the basement, and you know, the person would disappear at that point. So, um, but it does a really good job of interweaving everything. It also has the happiest ending I've seen in any <laughs> of the American Horror Story things. Like, interesting. All the feels. Um. Freak Show was really was good. Like I, I enjoyed it. It's also the most depressing one that I've watched of theirs. Like it did a good job. There was one character I thought I was absolutely gonna hate, and then about four episodes in, I finally like clicked. It was like, oh, okay, no. like I, I, I feel it. Like I like this guy. I see, where, I see where he's going. Like, and he had some payoff. I kept being told like, oh man, he he gets his comeuppance, and then at the end of it, I was like, uh, like it could have been stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest thing there was the person who had seen it. I was just like, oh man, I'm just really surprised they don't have a Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, one of us scene. What are you talking about? Well, freaks. The, you know, 1932, one that was banned for like 50 years. Yeah. And then I went through and did a whole, like told her about the whole thing and the Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, one of us scene. And whatever. And then I get to episode 11 out of 13 or 12 out of 13. And they explain freaks to one of the characters who is essentially doing what happened in freaks that he's 
um, one character or a couple of characters are working together and infiltrate the freaks and then are killing them off to sell them to museums of morbid curiosity. Wow. And then in one of the later episodes, they are like, oh yeah, we're about to do our annual screening of freaks. Oh, what's that? And he, they tell him, he goes like, oh, that sounds like a real, you know, you know, sounds like a Hollywood hit sort of thing. <laughs> and then they do a complete recreation in like two minutes. Of the, the Google Gobble Google. Oh, no, no, they don't do the Google Gobble Google Gobble, but they do the ending of it where all the freaks are chasing him down in the rain. And they, and then at the end of the episode, you get to see him as a freak. And you're like, oh, wow. So I just had to text the person as soon as I finished that episode. I was like, thank you for humoring me and letting me explain to you what freaks was. Like, <laughs> I know you haven't <laughs> seen <laughs> freaks, but... But who knows? That might have glossed over. It, it could have, but I um, y- two days ago at work, they came in with somebody came in with a copy of Freaks, and I bought it off of them because we didn't buy it at work. I was just like, "Yes, I ne- I need to watch this now." You're like, like I must own a copy. <laughs> but yeah, um, really good. Um, the one big character everybody knows about from Freak Show is Twisty the Clown. Um. I'm not familiar, but that's not surprising. Yeah, he's, um, whenever you see him, he is, just has, like, cuts on his eye, above and below his eyes that are for the clown makeup. He's wearing, like, Ed Gein-like level skinned cap with hair sticking out there and has a um, plaster smile on the lower half of his face. Okay, yeah, I have, yeah, okay, I have seen that. Um, that's played by John Carroll Lynch. He was one of the people that could have been the Zodiac Killer in Zodiac. Oh, okay. Um, Marge's husband in Fargo. Yeah, yeah. You would not guess it looking at him. No. Like, I could totally did not, I was watching that knowing that it was him and still going, I don't see it. Yeah, it's like, like he's completely disappeared behind the makeup. Yeah, I mean, what what I've from watching American Horror Story so quickly together, I've realized is it's what it does great on every season. I mean, I don't like Murder House and Coven. I just lost interest in, but I'm watching again. Um, but what it does so great is it puts you in the scenes. There's a couple of outsider characters that get introduced, so that's how you kind of learn about what's going on but the majority of the characters have been living in this sequence or in this world and you get flash each episode is pretty much dedicated to a flashback for the character and learning something more about these characters past so it's a little bit of a you know cliche well and like that's kind of what they're playing on is the fact that there's this century of horror that they can play on the yeah. tropes of and the context and, and what what they do that really good is like freak shows set in the 50s um hotel or, is modern day coven is modern day um i mean i guess murder houses as well asylum is in the 60s so that what they actually they've started doing is actually interweaving characters from previous seasons well, into is supposed to be like, well, all the way back, right? 
I think so. Yeah, the, I think it's supposed to take place in the seventeen or yeah, seventeen from seventeenth what I, century. From what I've understood about it so far, it's been a um, it's more of an interview show. I haven't got to watch any of it, but it's more like each episode is them interviewing somebody that talks about their Roanoke experience, hmm. and then it uses the normal cast of characters or normal actors that they have to play out these. to play these. Yeah. Um, yeah. My favorite, favorite storyline from hotel had to be Liz Taylor, which was Dennis O'Hare playing a, um, transgender woman. Um, that is wanting to reconnect with her son you know, ends up falling in love. The Lady Gaga plays the Countess, who's you know this vampire who's been around since the 1920s. This is Coven or this? Uh, uh, this is Hotel. hotel. Yeah. And, um, but she takes on different lovers depending, you know, on whatever. And Liz Taylor, a lot of it is like her finding true love and you know trying to reconnect with family and all this stuff and even having the heartbreak and everything like definitely the best character of there um and it, it does tie into coven it ties into murder house well murder house takes place over multiple like a 20 years or something. yeah all, all of them all of them span multiple decades just depending but it, a lot of it is backstory like in um freak show one of the things is they actually use real freaks quote-unquote freaks um to play a lot of the pivotal roles so like there's one that he's the seal man um and he had, you know, he's got well, some. Some of those freaks don't exist anymore because of modern medicine, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but because like, the cases of microcephaly are so rare now that it's rare that they survive childhood. Yeah, the um, but this guy's actually a real actor who. Oh, okay. Like you just. Yeah, so he he's a real um he's a, he's a real actor. He plays in a bunch of these kind of exploitation movies. And there's a great sequ- sequence where there's the whole um you know, circus performers do, don't perform on Halloween because of this. Yeah. Um and that character that the myth is based off of shows up and interview like basically he's trying to figure out which soul he's going to take. And at one point he is interviewing the seal man. And just kind of goes like, you know, hey, you tattooed your whole whole body. Why not your face? And he's like, oh, I was going to, but you know, I have a beautiful face. And, you know, I'm I'm handsome. If I didn't have these arms, I could have ruled the world. Like you know, like you know, like him being vain and all you know yeah. all that stuff. It's just like ah, uh, like you genuinely end up caring for all these characters and then seeing them how oh how this one ended up in asylum and you know yeah. how this one ended up here and. I'm trying. I think it's from Murder House. There's the uh, abortion doctor or the doctor. I think who ended up being killing the Black Dahlia, who yeah, yeah, would yeah. breathe the uh, laughing gas. Yeah, um, shows up in Hotel as a flashback, trying to perform an abortion. Like, wow! It's just you know, there's all this. There's all the a lot of tied in. Yeah, stuff. It, totally like. Um, multiple actors play multiple characters in the same Which season. Is, 
Which was, that, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. They didn't really do that in the first one. They but. didn't. And it took, I think, till season four for them to start doing that. But, um, yeah, in, I'm trying to remember in Hotel, um, Sarah Paulson plays two different characters in that one. Um, the guy who, this guy right here. Um, did you watch The Big Short? Yeah. He was one of the two younger guys oh, okay. yeah, that yeah, backed yeah. bet against the A-plus ratings. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were tied to Brad Pitt's character. Here. Yes. Like, once I realized... Who it was. Who, I was like, holy shit, like, he is an amazing actor. Like, he plays two different people in Hotel. He plays kind of like this really stuck-up, arrogant model type. Um, and then when that character is taken out of the show, he is then playing a 1920s like um for like italian um actor who would like play the chic in different things and then he's in this as in um freak show as this super spoiled rich kid <laughs> that like he like i just absolutely love him now as an actor like anything he's going to be in i have to watch so yeah, it. I would totally recommend watching them. I'm actually working my way backwards. I think um, I'm just about to finish Coven, and then as soon as I'm done with Coven, I'm gonna go into Asylum and then finish up with uh, Murder House again. As much as I don't like Murder House, I mean, it lays the foundation for what they're doing. Uh, so. Yeah, it does. It just it never really seemed to connect for me on there, but hotel i feel like they do it so much better which is just kind of a weird thing for them to revisit a lot of the same themes yeah but i mean if they're in a situation where they can actually make that redo it but do it where it makes more sense and is better then yeah i guess that kind of makes sense in general but uh so i i, I wanted to pose this to you watched allure us from evil recently right okay what was that again deliver Sorry. us from evil yes i did I also watched it recently. Okay. Uh, what did you think? It had issues. I felt like something was missing the whole time. Yeah. There was some element. I couldn't tell what it was. Yeah. Um, because I felt like for some part of it, I think what really did it for me was the fact that realistically the priest should have been the main character. Definitely. Because yeah. his story... Is much more interesting than Sarge's. Yeah, much more interesting. I'm sorry, a guy. If you would, if the opening image had been a guy waking up in the middle of a hotel, covered in piss, with a needle sticking out of his arm, and being like, "I've got to get my life together," like, and go through the whole thing of like, he keeps encountering this demon until he ends up in New York City. And then there's this whole, but, you know, I don't understand why they didn't do it. It's probably because it would have cost a shit ton more money. Right. <laughs> but I'm sorry, like, Eric Banis, the character he plays, Ralph Sarchi, is not interesting at all. No, the... And it, it's, he's, he's so bland. The character is so bland. The character, I will say the character. Yeah. Not, his, not his acting. Like, he was, he I mean, was and very the, invested, and, the, and that's the thing is that... It still has all the, it, it probably is the character because the movie has all the hallmarks that made Sinister so good, like 
you know, it has the director, the photography, all the the yeah. shots. Well, and even the the storytelling techniques with the sounds and stuff. Do you hear that? But we hear it. But every time we hear, it, we don't know the context of those sounds. Right. And they slowly build up to the point that you're like, oh, did he see something? Did it? And then you literally get like this radio, this group of kids, this thing. That's what he's hearing. He's hearing the past come back into his head, right, over and over. One of the biggest complaints was like that, like there were jump scares everywhere. I read some reviews and like, okay, but uh, um, and like, why did that guy with covered in blood show up multiple times? I'm like, he's the guy he killed. Right. It, it tells you the whole movie. Take tell you, he does play with the uh, also the types of footage, he, like he did in Sinister. Right. Like, the you get that much more grainy, uh, like seventies kind of film stock, right, right, style in, in his flashback, and you also get the surveillance footage. You get the uh, the found footage from the soldier's perspective. You know that. So he's still kind of playing with medium in the way that right. he was in Sinister. I heard some, the the main complaint I heard from most people was it was the same shit. There was exorcisms. There was. It was. I mean, I, I there's parts of it that I did like whenever they were having the exorcism in the interrogation room. And and uh, I think it was Jeremy Johns who Jeremy Jones who bitched about like how much cliche stuff, but then the exorcism scene was fucking awesome. Like, right, like, like the, the whole, like, disco- disconnecting or you, dislocating. Did you recognize who that was? Uh, no, I didn't. It's Sean Harris, bro. Sean Harris. Guy from uh, fucking uh, uh, Red Riding trilogy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, it's, it's him. Yeah. He looked, he He's disappeared into that. Room. Yeah, yeah, I totally yeah, you have not. no idea. It's him. Yeah, the um, I don't know. It, it a lot of it did feel formulaic. I mean, it does have the, as I said, the biggest thing, the biggest plus it has is the um, camera work. Yeah, and the lighting and some of the editing is really cool. Like they do, they do lots of really cool stuff. The problem is, like you're saying, it's it's a story that's been told a hundred times already in horror. And right. I think that's what, that was one of its detriments. But I just felt like there was some element that was missing. I don't know if it was the music. I don't know if it was some element of the story that was missing. I don't know if it was like, but uh, dude, when the priest gave his whole like backstory, I'm like, this is a much more interesting movie than we're watching. Right. Yeah. Not even joking. Like someone make a prequel about the fucking priest. Cause I bet it's amazing. There's so much story you could do with the priest. You know, you could do a prequel, midquel sequel with him where he's young, gets clean, tries to have a family, he fails, he goes on the priesthood, he gets back on heroin, he has to quit, he ends up in New York, he's helping people, he ends up in the exorcism case. What happens to him after that? Right. Like, you would do the full prequel, yeah, because sequel. Because literally at the end, they're just like, yeah, hey, after this, he kind of, the the police. They kept working together. Yeah. He, he quit being a, you know, he quit the police and uh, they still work together. 
okay, like, all right, but buddy cop movie, our buddy uh, exorcism a, movie, yeah, buddy cop, buddy cop exorcism movie, <laughs> which I mean, like. I don't know, like, maybe it's after watching, like, Nicholas Winding Refn films and being like, he's really pushing the envelope of what's happening in these films. Like, even if, like, not always, not always, sometimes to their detriment, you know, sometimes. But right. Maybe the thing was, like, the style, because like, it looked good. The, the Yeah. The exorcism, like, even the makeup looked really good and stuff. Well, as I said, like, I completely conflated it with the devil inside us as well, which is why I never saw it. Like, you know, I've been a big Scott Derrickson fan for years yeah. now where I'm just like, oh, my God, like. Scott this. Derrickson. Yeah. And like, oh, oh fuck. I do not want to watch Doctor Strange, but it's Scott Derrickson. Fuck. Fuck. So, you know, it's just one of the, like, if I didn't know that that was his movie or else I would have seen it years ago. But, yeah, just some, something's off about it. Like, I, I need to rewatch it. I actually now have it on the uh, voodoo. So. There's just some element that's missing. I'm not sure what now, it is. Now, but. part of me, I, I kind of wonder because it was having trouble keeping my attention. And I notice personally with myself is that if I, um, if my sound is turned down too much, like it just becomes background noise. Yeah. And then I have to kind of stop and like, there were definitely a couple times where I rewound it going like, did I see what I think I just saw or okay. The other thing, um, was the Joel McHale being in it really like I can, I can. Except he did such a good job. He did. He did. But I'm used to him being a smarmy asshole the entire time. Yeah, in everything that he's ever been in, and his and being the comic relief usually. Yeah, I mean that I love him in Community, but it was just like okay, and he did a good job. Like I was like, oh cool, like Eric. Even his death scene was was pretty good. Like I was uh, impressed. Like he didn't overham it. Like it was just like, oh, that was kind of subtle. <laughs> like, right. That's kind of subtle for Joel McHale. <laughs> Yeah, it took me a sec. It took me out of the movie when I first saw it. Exactly. Yeah. And then I was like, "Oh wait, okay. Uh, he's not just being Joel McHale. Like he's been in a bunch of other, the Joel McHale character. Obviously, he's not, you know, just playing himself. He has a character he plays. I'm not just off playing him on there. Right. Right. That makes no sense. America. Fuck yeah. America. Fuck uh. yeah. So you worked your way back through Sinister. You watched the day the Earth stood still. And I watched Deliverance from Evil. I didn't get to the, I didn't have time to get to the exorcism, exorcism of Emily Rose yet. And you also did not watch Inferno. Yeah, I Hellraiser Inferno. Yeah, I haven't seen either of those. <sighs> I know I'm getting there, but I, but I, but I, I didn't. I watched all of Deliverance from Evil, which there, there is I, that. Which I mean, I'm glad I did because that third act exorcism scene is pretty intense it's it's worth watching for that <laughs> <Yeah>. but like <laughs> i just i don't know like the mystery didn't really capture me like the mystery doesn't feel like a mystery no maybe that's it maybe that's the problem is like we already know it's it's a demon what if we had a different t title do we like yeah i mean plus if the cover art on this movie is awful yeah. It's and you know, 
I'm it try- looks like a drama from the late nineties that that cover. Well, it also doesn't help that I'm pulling it up. But there's on. also like 15 movies that have been called Deliverous from Evil. Yeah, but so the the one that I'm looking at right now, which was the poster that came out, and the top, like, of what, a fourth of the, probably a good third of the, the whole thing is nothing but text. And it's from the director of Sinister and the Exorcism of Emily Rose, inspired by the actual accounts of an NYPD sergeant. And then you see the more interesting character yeah. with his uh, crucifix out. And then a, a, a shot of something that's in the movie for half a second. At the Yeah, at the very bottom of it. And then the middle of it is, you know, Eric Bana. Edgar Ramirez, Deliver Us From Evil. All the credits in theaters July 2nd. It's like, this is complete rubbish, guys. Like, this this tells me everything, and that's the problem. And maybe it should have just been, you know, the invocation. Or, um, or even Sarchi. Call it Sarchi, or if you're gonna focus on Sarchi, but like, or I feel like the book even had a better title or something. Yeah. Well, there's a blacklight version where you can see the the, and the Latin and inscription, and the deliver us from evil instead spells devil. Which it does on the DVD, right? Yeah, but I'm saying that's that's what they're that that's what the uh, deliver us from devil. Yeah, and you know it's the same thing, but just really big, lots of text that just goes, guys. This edge of tomorrow, what? That doesn't make me interested. Oh, that's that's the one I've always seen. Is that in the middle of the top image with that doesn't actually have the NYPD sergeant in it? Yeah, it says inspired by the accounts actual accounts of an NYPD sergeant. It's just like there's so much going on there that it just does not help at all. And maybe it's also because like it's not approaching it from the perspective of the... It's approaching it from the atheist character as opposed to from the religious character that it takes a minute for you to buy that it's a demon. Like, you gotta get us in. You gotta get us to... The hook has to be us buying into the premise. Right. Not, not us buying into the premise when the character finally buys into the premise. Right. Which he doesn't buy it into it until he first does the exor- attempts to do the exorcism with the girl. Right, right, right. That's the first time he buys into the whole bloody thing. Right. And I, because there's no... It doesn't feel like a mystery. It feels like, oh, it's automatically demons. To right, us. right. Yeah. But I don't buy it. Because why are... Well, and then he's like watching the video, and stuff pops up in there, and, and then there's a jump scare in the video, and you're like, uh, "What?" Right, right, right. So there's just some some element in the f- there's something they didn't do in the first act that yeah that <laughs> totally didn't hook us in, and I don't know if that's on the script stage. I don't know if that's in. I the wonder if there's any analyses videos of it, just kind of going, "What went wrong with like that?" That should be that should be a YouTube channel. What, what went, went wrong? wrong. 
like as opposed to how did this get made just or, like where where could this have been fixed or what's wrong with it it's like where did this go wrong you know what went wrong you know where did they make them the crucial mistake right that led oh. to you know you know I'm sorry, I've copyrighted that already. You got just don't don't even don't even think about it, fuckers. <laughs> no, um, same with when I texted you and I was like, I came up with a name. No one has the Gmail. No one has the YouTube channel. Done. Yeah, <laughs> and I made a Twitter. I was like, done. All right. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Do you have anything you'd like to recommend people see before we uh, take off? Well, you haven't seen it, but you should see Doctor Strange. Okay. And no, here's the thing. I feel like after watching it, even if it had been a different director, but they went the same, they had the same vision. You you would still go see this movie if I told you to go see it. Uh, yeah, I just hate Benedict Cumberbatch so much. He just gets worse every time I see him. Have you watched? Did you like Sherlock? I've never watched Sherlock. Um, Mine's more. I, I came in. I first f- discovered him in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which and is actually a pretty old movie for him. It's been pretty young. I mean, that was what five years ago. I feel like it was a long. I thought that. it was 2011. Um, I think it was 2009. But like everything that I've watched him in since then, just seemed like. It, his Star Trek Into Darkness was so bad. Okay, ignore Star Trek Into Darkness. You can't, though. Um, Black Mass did nothing for me. I saw him seeing Black Mass. Um, him as Smog was just words. <laughs> Literally, it was... <laughs> just just words. Um, actually, I think his Julian Assange was actually pretty good. And the fifth, it was him and Daniel Brühl were the only good parts about that whole fucking yeah, um, movie. Tinker Taylor was 2011. Okay, for some reason I think it's maybe because Gary Oldman's in it. I think that it's old, older. That it's than like it. 2009, 2008, something like that. Something. Oh, I didn't. Dark Knight. E- I didn't even realize he was in Atonement. Like I need to watch that again. Just on general principle, it's like. You know, I'm a big Joe Wright fan, so I'm just like, okay, we need to, you know, watch Pan, despite at one point it turning into Moulin Rouge for one scene. Not even joking. I heard it was awful. Like, I, I don't think it was awful, but knowing what it's, it doesn't do what you would, what you want a Peter Pan movie to do. Which is wow you? No, is to be a Peter Pan movie. Oh. Wait. What? The main villain in the movie is Blackbeard. He is friends with an Indiana Jones-esque Captain Hook before he loses his hand. Like, they don't even address them being villains. The last lines in the movie is just like, you know, we're going to be friends forever, aren't we? Yeah, I can't see anything that would come between us. You know, something something along those lines. Like, that sounds fucking awful. Have you watched the trailer for it? Yeah, the trailer looked bad. Uh, see, for me, for it being a Joe Wright film, like it completely fits with Joe Wright. Like visual, the visuals of it are amazing. The movie, it's it's okay, but it's the visuals. Like it, it, 
any Joe Wright movie, the first thing I'm going for is the visuals. Yeah. Like, he's done some amazing storytelling and stuff, like Atonement, um, Hannah. But I haven't seen Hannah. Either. Oh, there's one fight scene that was one of my favorite fight scenes that you just have to watch. But um, he also did the, um, you're going to correct me on it, the Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. That's it. See, I told you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he did that one, and the way he framed it looks like it was a stage play the entire Except time. I've, I have a keen idea that that was entirely Tom Stoppard's idea. And it, might, it may have been, but I'm saying... But yeah. the w- oh, no. It, that was one of those movies that looked pretty, and it was a piece of shit. Exactly. And, the, and, the, <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of how I feel about Pan, is that there's interesting ideas there. The visuals are gorgeous. Uh, Joe Wright also did um, uh, Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley, which was awesome. I never saw that. Uh, uh, Katie was a huge uh, Austin fan. And honestly, I tried to read Austin. I, I'm so used to the, the heightened everything of the, all the movie versions. Have you ever read I, Austin? I, I, I haven't, but uh, I think we had this discussion like I, a year or so ago. Yeah. You were like, Every because you'd seen every movie adaptation, you were like, "Well, why doesn't you were tried to read it?" And you were like, "Why isn't Mister Darcy like a no, no, no?" What what it was or, is like the first time that they meet is at the dance hall, and in the movie, like they end up dancing together, they have some back and forth, and they kind of just go off disgusted with each other. And um, in the book, it's literally, "Oh, we went to the dance. I met Mister Darcy. He is a pretty dreadful person." Very matter of fact. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, God, I, I want more from this. I don't just want... Uh, I, he was boring. We also have to take into uh, consideration I, yes, the time period. How uh, many books in that time period were heightened in their drama? Yeah. No. Not I mean, that many. Even just having dialogue would have been perf- good, but there, you know, it was just... It's well, big. wasn't it written from one character's perspective? It was, so... So where the, why the fuck would you expect there to be dialogue? Because I want it, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, it's all from one person's point of view, but I want the dialogue... I want there to be dialogue. I want, well, I want to hear that. I want to see what happens. I don't, you know... You don't want to imagine that in your head. There's nothing to imagine from that. I met. We went to the dance. Well, obvious, he was a pretty dreadful person. Obviously, the screenwriters would debate that with you because they thought of some pretty clever stuff well, that they, intrigued you enough to read the book. They so. they took the scene and then had to build something for it there to be a scene in a movie. Yeah. I'm. I'm. But there's nothing but, but for me to the, build off of. Like I'm not going to sit there on a passage that's a you know five sentences long for two hours going. I wonder what their interaction was like if I'm not being paid to write that. I'm just, I, I'm just saying it obviously just doesn't stimulate you. No, no, it does not. So, so. Th- I, as I said, I've tr- I tried that. And I was like, yeah, totally. Full Jane Austen collection. Let's do this thing. And they went, you can have that with the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that with the divorce. <laughs> so... Okay, so Nathan, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you find the same places: Twitter at uh, Nate Wad Neutron, or uh, sorry, at Nate Wad Tumblr at Nate Wad Neutron. You can find me on the Facebook Dubious Consumers page. Please like 
and share. I try. Uh, some weeks are better than others of uh, <laughs> of me keeping up to date on there. Um, but uh, trying to be better about that, just in general. Uh, Facebook is infuriating sometimes because I feel like people don't see our posts even when they like our page. So they don't. Yeah, because they want you to pay that money. They want you to boost that post. So, uh, Justin, uh, have you prepared the the holy litany of your name? Um, <laughs> so, so I literally just did this with a person where I pulled up the dubious consumers and I pulled up Justin D. Heard, and it seriously like images was the first thirty images were all from my website. <laughs> Like there was, there was, there was one that broke it and then immediately went right back into it. It was really funny. I, I'm pretty sure I, uh, I was typing into Twitter and I typed Justin and D and then it was heard. <laughs> like I was like, that's hilarious. Yeah. So like it, you definitely have the, the cornered the market on Justin D. Yeah. <laughs> it just, at, at this point I just need to be using it. That's, yeah. you know, it's not hurting anything, but it's not helping me at the moment. Yeah. So probably put it put it to your use. Yeah, something like that. So you can find me at justindheard.com, justindheard.net, justinheard.com, at justindheard on Twitter, real justindheard on Facebook, justindheard author on Google Plus. Um, just Google justindheard. If you have Google Plus, I'm amazed. Yeah, not even. Yeah, I don't even know the last time anybody posted to Google Plus. (laughs) It's been a while. Um, but I have it. So hey, yay. Um, I also have an Amazon author page. You can find my book at bit dot ly forward slash o-g-a-m-t-f so nathan do you have any final thoughts for us go see dr strange What did you think of the killing joke? Um, I feel like they had no one like, okay. So the worst part about the 30 minutes, they, it actually made sense in the context of that little short 30 minute segment, the opening or the ending, the opening. Okay. The opening of like why supposedly this version of Barbara would sleep with Batman it made sense within the context of the story that we're saying. Right, right, right. I didn't say it was good. It just made sense. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I was they, like, they, okay. they made it work. Apparently, it was based off of a uh, prequel comic to The Killing Joke um, that was in the lead up to it coming out. Um, when The Killing Joke came out, there was a bunch of like theories and like, well, does Batman kill him at the end? Does he not? Like, yeah. da 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 da. Is Batman poisoned? And da- all this stuff. And uh, I will say there were elements of the animated movie that I liked but it felt like they really had their hands tied yeah and and, the, and I saw what you meant of like they were being so slavish to the comic book that they weren't like but then to the point that when they left stuff out it was frustrating right well the the weird thing to me is that there's been this build up over the years of hearing Mark Hamill do the memories um, speech, 
And whenever it comes on in the the actual anime movie, you're just like, yeah, this isn't too bad. Like there, there it's not. It's not transcendent like you th- would think it would be. There's and maybe part of that is also just the context of when they were doing it. They should have done it fucking five years ago and not waited so damn long. Right. Well, you know, now, you know, ever since Justice League uh, Flashpoint, they can finally start making rated R or essentially rated R animated movies. Before that, they were just like, oh, we can't fucking do that. Also, like, okay, what was the point of that one character if if they weren't going to, like, reintroduce him into the end so, like, Batman could beat him up or something? Yeah. Like, it didn't. I, I was like, there's no payoff to this guy, so why is he here? There's no, I mean, to be fair, there's no payoff to the end of the story any, either. I mean, that's the but whole point. there was po- no payoff in the comic book. That's so what I'm I saying. Wasn't, I that wasn't that surprised <laughs> that there's no payoff. Though I will say, they do make it very clear that the Joker stops laughing in the audio track. Before yeah. Batman does. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's... It's very clearly just Batman laughing at the end. It is. And so I was like, okay... But it, it's stu- it's to me it's even more lackluster than the comic was because the comic had the panels to make you go, bum, bum, rain, and you're like, oh, okay, something happened here. I'm not sure what it is, but something's happened. Yeah, but like, I feel like, I feel like they made it very clear that this was Batman. Batman's one bad day is what led to the Batman killing the Joker. Okay, not Commissioner Gordon losing his mind. Wasn't Commissioner Gordon who compromised his morals? It was Batman. Okay, he broke. That, see, there, there was. There's a theory that you know, um, at during that beginning of that fight, um, in the upside down room, that the Joker is trying to stab Batman with the needle that has the venom in it, or not venom, um, whatever the Joker serum, the Rictus stuff, yeah. um, and Batman knocks it away, and then whenever the Joker knocks him down, there's a point where Batman fixes his cow and he's looking at his hand like this. And then that's whenever he just starts beating the shit out of Joker. That's where his bad day, like, comes to a head. Like, maybe Batman and Joker both end up dying at the end of this. Like, Batman goes, oh shit, I'm going to die. Like, I have to try and fix this with Joker. I can't fix it. Okay, we're both going out. So, like, that was one of the theories, which yeah. is more pronounced in the comic book if you look at it, because there's, as I said, there's a lot of imagery with hands and then yeah. looking at hands and just the weirdness of the well, there's angle. there's also just more imagery in general. Right, right. Know. Which I think is what some people mistake for, like, like if you're going to be slavish to it, be slavish to it. Right. If you're going to not be slavish to it, don't try to be slavish to it. And they even said that, like, apparently when they did animation tests, that doing Brian Boland's exact style was terrifying in animation. So they actually dumbed the lines down to Kevin Nolan's style, right. which is a more exaggerated style. Right. And it's simpler and more clean in its lines. Unless that dirty, gritty, super hyper-realistic stuff that Brian Bullen's so good at. Right. I feel like, if anything, you should have restructured the narrative to open with the Joker's origin. Yeah, I could see that. So do the Joker's origin into the Batgirl stuff, and then rewrite it to where Batgirl makes sense, 
like even helps with trying to find him. <laughs> like she comes out of retirement. But you also would have had people like throwing. You know, you, yeah. they were in a lose lose situation. Yeah. Like they should never mm-hmm. have done it. Or, or if you're gonna do it, just just fucking do a motion comics basically, and right. just do it exactly 100 percent, no difference. You know, don't try and add any flourishes. Don't try. But and yeah, film that, that's it, the other thing it. that's weird about it is the whole, um, like, the comic. It's so well paced because they know you're reading that bubble, yeah. and having things that are supposed to happen concurrently, but. In an animated movie, they would happen concurrently. In the comic, they're spaced apart. So you get the Joker when you have those monologuing. Know. Like whenever he, I'm talking about like when he stabs the amusement oh, um, yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. Like those things happen concurrently. It shouldn't, like, the guy's talking to him and then all of a sudden the Joker's monologuing and telling him, oh, hey, well, I've already, you know, we've already pressured your partners and everything. And then you get the reveal that he's been dead the whole time. Yeah that doesn't work in the animated movie it works in the comic and it's because well and as alan moore points out he never wrote anything to be adapted to film he wrote it to be a comic right so <laughs> right and he and that's what's expert about his stuff is that it's like okay all the tension is built into the bubbles because you're not thinking about hey he's talking to a guy and that's the, and the way the panels change change signs the way you zoom into something, the way you zoom out of something is very specific. Which is the, there's a YouTube channel that was talking about, I, it might have been, been talking about Watchmen, where it was talking about the, using the nine panels and... Yeah, the nine panel grid, there's the the fact that, uh, there's even a chapter that's a palindrome. Right. You know, perfect symmetry, the, right. or a fearful symmetry, the one where Rorschach gets captured. Everything hinges on a single panel in the center of the comic, and everything f- it basically floats in and around that. As far as panel design, characters showing back up, lines of dialogue showing back up, but it's not a perfect like right, right, like right palindrome. But it's like it's super symmetrical, like it's crazy, right? So it, it, as I said, it's just one of those that it shouldn't have been adapted. They added a thing on the front of it to kind of go, hey, we can create something new, and then left the killing joke completely and or almost completely intact. Like, yeah. there was definitely some omissions, but they were trying as closely as they could, but that's also the issue. Yeah. Like, the issue is, like, and also the fact that, like, it bled, it was something that wasn't meant to bleed over to canon. Well, but it was so popular. There, there's, there's a thing on it that, the the person I was talking the video series kind of goes well DC completely knew what was coming up it's not like they were blindsided by it it no. appeared in this portion and then it became part of canon like the, his question was well based off of these factors was it actually not meant to be canon or is that apocryphal no it, it I mean that was meant that was not meant to be a canon story that was supposed to just be a one-off that Alan and Brian did. It wasn't... Because, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why he kills the Joker. Or why it's hinted that he killed the Joker. Yeah, but it, that's one of those that... Same with Arkham Asylum. I mean, it's the same period. Arkham Asylum and Killing Joke kind of came around the same time. Taking these people who've had very successful like runs on stuff 
you know, and let's give him something that's not canon. To be fair, Batman in and of itself should be non-canon stories just all over the place. Pretty right? much at this you point. You know, because all my favorite ones I can think of are stuff like Brian Azalea's Joker. You know, Brian Azarello. Yeah, that's um, yeah. same guy who wrote the Killing Joke, right? Of but, movie, but you know, Arkham Asylum. That one just with the whole Two Face moving to a deck of cards to make his decision. You know, stuff like that. Like all those one uh, Batman Venom. Uh, the Long Halloween. Yeah, I mean the Long Halloween is kind of the perfect example. I mean, bloody when after the Dark Knight came out and they. It's like the 10th anniversary of The Killing Joke. Something or, like that, yeah. And, or, sorry, not The Killing Joke, but The, the Long, Long Halloween. Halloween. Christopher Nolan wrote the bloody intro going, hey, this really influenced me in The Dark Knight. That and Gotham Central by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka are right. the main influences on Dark Knight. But, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things of like the standalone things. Even though there are arcs and stuff that are important, it's more the standalone stuff that kind of has lived. I mean, look at Dark Knight Returns. That's right, not right. a canon story. Right. But it's the thing that every Batman movie tries to be. Right. Um, they they shouldn't try to be. Well, so the funny thing is, is I just had a conversation with um, one of my coworkers where he told me that he had not watched any of the Dark Knight movies. And I said, okay, if you have time for one movie... Watch The Dark Knight. Yeah. If you don't, here's my suggestion. The Dark Knight trilogy is not a trilogy. Yeah. The only thing that makes it a trilogy is that the... Um, the actor who played Batman and the director are the same. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's three movies, but The Dark Knight, the only thing that matters in The Dark Knight is the like the last five minutes. Basically, Toothface trying to kill Commissioner Gordon. That is the only thing that, or kill Commissioner Gordon's son, is the only thing that carries over into the Dark Knight Rises. Well, and realistically, uh, Gordon is is the main character who right right thrusts. but he's his story is really the story of the trilogy right not but Batman but at, what I'm saying is is that you could cut you could cut not watch the Dark Knight and only watch the last five minutes of the Dark Knight. And still watch The Dark Knight Rides. Yeah, and have no gaps in logic, no gaps in knowledge, nothing. It flows. But the whole Joker thing is completely cut out because of Heath Ledger. So if you're wanting the best film, watch The Dark Knight. If you're wanting to kind of see how the story plays out, watch Batman Begins and watch The Dark Knight Rises and then go back and watch The Dark Knight and go, okay, yeah, you know, I've got it. Yeah. His death just drastically reshaped what right. they were going to do for that third film. So Yeah, of course, I was just thinking about it before we started, which was that performance would have haunted Heath Ledger for the rest of his career. Yeah, but at the same time... Like, I, yeah, I think that would have completely, ki- you know, not killed his career, but it would have... It would have been like, why can't you be like the Joker... Yeah. yeah. Well, be kind of. I was gonna say like Josh Hartnett or somebody like that that has a couple of breakout roles and then just completely goes, "I'm not gonna be in the limelight." And like completely pull back and just start doing yeah. indie bullshit from then on. Yeah. 
and occasionally popping up in some big movie or television series. Yeah. That's that is what Heath Ledger's life would have been after that. Yeah. And realistically the way film and television have gone, he probably would have ended up in a big television series. Yeah. And probably would have been a from the little bit I've watched Westworld, I mean, he would have been one of the characters in Westworld. You yeah, know, have, I haven't got know. to watch any Westworld yet, which really makes me sad because I want to watch the nerd, keep up on Nerd Rider. But I'm like, I haven't watched any Westworld, so I can't really watch this. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> I do the same thing when movies come out. That I'm like, uh, I'm like, can't watch any of this till the movie comes, till I watch the movie because I'm not going to run it for me. Right, right. 